0: Hello, this is Dr. Tia Barnes, and welcome to the Scholarly Self-Care Podcast, where we will talk all about the SEL, or social-emotional learning, in self-care. This podcast is for educators, parents, and caregivers of children and youth. Each week, we will talk about your well-being to put you in a better space to support the well-being of the children in your life. Ready to get started? Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm so excited to have with me an amazing guest. Her name is Camila Drummond Forrester. Currently, Camila is the director of Open Circle, a program with the Wellesley Centers for Women at Wellesley College. And this program equips elementary schools with evidence-based curriculum and training to improve school climate and teach children essential social and emotional skills. Camila's passion for social justice and the social and emotional well being of children has fueled her vision for advocating for and educating others about the inextricable connections between social and emotional learning and equity. Camila is also a trained leader with the National Seed Project, where she has led cohorts of colleagues educators, and parents through year-long, intense community building across difference via storytelling, conversation, and teaching around topics of diversity, equity, and social justice. Prior to joining Open Circle, Camila was the co-founder and director of wellness at a charter school in Boston and the director of an award-winning, educationally-based reentry program in the Suffolk County House of Correction. Camilla is a sought-after speaker, consultant, and workshop presenter on topics of educational equity and social and emotional learning. She writes about these topics in Women Change Worlds blog and recently published articles in EdgeSearch and the Hetchinger Report. Camilla grounds herself and work in the spiritual and contemplative practices that integrate multiple cosmologies that centers healing, radical compassion, and truth as cornerstones to authentic transformation. Camila is a first generation American with Jamaican roots with an unwavering love for her West Indian heritage and history. She is a mother, wife, daughter, sister, and friend. Welcome,
1: Camila. Thank you so
0: much, Tia, for having me. Of course, of course. I'm so excited to have you on the show and to hear your perspectives as it relates to social and emotional well being and social and emotional learning and especially your perspectives around equity, because it's such an important part of this work. And I want to make sure that we get that out there more into the world. So I wanted to start off by just having you tell the audience a little bit about your story. So can you tell us some of your background in terms of your... Thank you.
1: Sure. So anytime I'm asked to tell a little bit about my story, I'm always like, okay, which parts of it do I start with or which parts do I elevate? So... For this time around, I think I'll elevate the following areas. So I am a first-generation child of Jamaican parents. I spent much of my childhood between the U.S., so Boston, Massachusetts in particular, and Jamaica, Kingston 10, St. Andrew's Parish to be specific. And so often I will tell people that I was a commuter (laughs) between these two countries. Mm and you know, I cherish that those memories, I cherish um, and really appreciate deeply that opportunity to have been embedded into the cultural context of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, it supported a level of cultural fluidity with myself, but it also elevated some cultural clashes, right? Where at times I never felt fully embedded or fully authentically either one, American or Jamaican. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's something we can talk about later. Yes, definitely. I definitely want to talk about that. In addition, I would say that from an early age, I was a very inquisitive child in that inquisitive and I would say a deep thinker. So I was quiet. Um, However, as the phrase goes, still waters run deep. And so I was often thinking my mind was often turning. And specifically, I wondered, a lot about and thought a lot about how the mind works and how it impacts behavior. Hmm. You know, so I would, I would often have these moments of like studying my parents or studying family members and watching their behaviors and wanting to understand like, hmm, why does someone so behave this way? Or I'm noticing this pattern. And this has really been who I have been, I would say, since a child. So moving past that, I, I, went to college. I started off as pre-med. I was one of those people who had the Merck medical manual with me. <laughs> I used to walk around with it prior to college. Literally, you could ask any of my friends. They often will call me before they call their doctor at this point when it comes to what's going on with their kids. Um, and so... I just love that stuff. You know, I I say that I was a healer from a very young age, you know, someone who often wanted to figure out what was wrong with people and wanted to find a way and research ways of helping them. And so throughout my high school years, throughout my first few years of college, you know, I was studying to be a doctor, studying specifically to be a pediatrician. Anyways, that plan shifted the Mm -hmm. end of sophomore year. And honestly, it shifted because I wanted to not be in school for that long because I wanted to start a family. Mm, okay. Um, and so I shifted to psychology, which was, again, still aligned with kind of who I am and all of the things that interest me. Moved on and did a variety of different types of work, working with women who were in transition from the welfare system at the time, working with men and women who were in transition around employment. And so doing a lot of job readiness work and community work around that. Mm -hmm. And then eventually moving into working for the Suffolk County House of Correction. So I I actually worked for Bunker Hill Community College, which was a contractor with the Suffolk County House of Correction. And so I worked behind the wall, as they would say Mm -hmm. in the unit, it was a low security unit. And I was the job readiness instructor and eventually became the director of that program. This was a program that was educationally based. We taught the men and women behind the wall how to use the Nancy Atwell model for writing. And so we had folks doing writing assignments, elevating pivotal moments in their lives, encouraging them around these writing prompts and these Writing assignments, folks really got into it. It proved to be a very therapeutic and supportive modality. This writing piece, you know, they also had computer skills, they, um, classes, they also did job readiness. Anyway, so long and short of it is that this was a program that was really near and dear to my heart and a foundational, I think, piece professionally around where I am now. So, what ended up happening is, is that funding got cut as it always does. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the re-entry program was one of the areas at the time that the institution decided to cut. It was a big loss, I would say, because not only was I directing that program and kind of doing classes with folks, but I was also very much an advocate. And so was my staff. Like mm-hmm. We were very much advocates for our students and in that setting anyways, We then moved on to myself and another colleague and my sister decided to open a charter school in Boston. And the whole idea behind the charter school was what if we had some of our students from Mm -hmm. the ORP program when they were in fourth grade, when they were in fifth grade, where we could really provide the nurturing and holistic approach to education that we believe they needed. Mm -hmm. During that time in their transformation, that time in their development, Um, many of the conversations that I had with my students when I was working at the Suffolk County House of Correction was around, you know, what happened to you in school? Like, you're brilliant. I mean, this writing is exceptional. The way you think about the world, the way you think about problem solving is really scholarly, what happened? And many of the stories that I encountered had to do with, quite frankly, things in the social and emotional realm. Mm-hmm. You know, being in communities or family situations or school situations that were not supportive of their social and emotional development and well-being, being labeled at a young age as bad or unable to learn and kind of living down to those labels and those expectations not having one adult who they felt close enough to, who knew them in a holistic manner and who they could turn to in times of trouble or confusion. And so we built this charter school off of what we learned from that experience, because both my sister and my uh, colleague at the time had worked within the prison system system at some level, right? So my sister was working with them once they were released. I was behind the wall in terms of the pre-release, you know, unit. So one of the pieces of the charter that I was responsible for writing was this social and emotional wellness component. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Tia, I had no idea that there was an SEL field. I had no idea that there was a social and emotional field. This was simply all from my experience Mm -hmm. saying that Uh, specifically, we are going to hold the social and emotional wellness of our children at this charter school on par with the academics because we believe that it is foundational. And so that was the piece that I wrote uh, when we ended up opening the school. That was the piece that I oversaw. And so we had very specific collaborations with Boston Children's Hospital. Their social workers and psychologists were exceptional in helping us build out that piece. We developed an advisory program where each child had one adult who was connected with them and their family throughout their time there. So it wasn't just like a year, it was multiple years that they were connected with this one adult so that they could really nurture and deepen that relationship. You know, my sister was in charge of the family engagement piece. And so we really took the education of these children as a holistic endeavor one that could not happen without the partnership of their families and communities, one that could not happen without academic rigor, and one that could not happen without us caring for their social and emotional needs. And as the universe would have it, we ended up finding out that some of our students who ended up enrolling in our school were the children of some of the students that I had in the ORP program. Oh, wow. Wow. So it just goes to show that sometimes when you put that intention out there, uh, you don't know how the universe is conspiring to really support that.
0: Yes.
1: So five years into that endeavor, um, I ended up moving on and moved on to Open Circle. And I started there as a program manager at the time they were looking to expand their program into Boston Public Schools. Do some more work around integrating some diverse lenses within the curriculum. And so I was a part of that team who did that work. And then in 2017, I transitioned to the director of the program and you know, something that I didn't mention early on, but is important to know in terms of my story is that in high school, I was the vice president of the Black Student Organization. In college, I was the president of the Black Student Organization. And so I share that just to say that social justice, love for my Black and Brown people is a part of the thread that makes me who I am. And so that's really been a part of who I am. And so in addition to the work that I was doing at Open Circle, you know, before I transitioned, my supervisor at the time really supported me being able to get the training from the National Seed Project, which is also a program of the Wellesley Centers for Women. And so oh, I went wow. out to California and did a seven-day intense residential training program with the National Seed Project, which was truly a transformational experience and continue to support my skill building around that work. And so in transitioning to the directorship role at Open Circle, weaving in the social justice lens, the equity lens into the work of social and emotional learning felt like a no brainer to me. I could not separate them. I am interdisciplinary at my heart. And so I often see the connections between many things that our society would silo. And so much of my conversation, much of my advocacy has been around doing this work of social emotional learning with a clear equity and social justice
0: lens. So as I'm listening to your story, first, I love just hearing people's stories of how they've journeyed and got to the place that they are. But one of the things that I guess it's just amazing me about your story is just how, like you said, the universe worked together to Mm -hmm. get you in this place. And it seems like all of the experiences that you've had along the way, even going back to when you um, initially talked about that interest in being a healer Mm -hmm. and now the work that you're doing is still healing people. That's right. Not necessarily maybe in the way that you initially thought you would, but it Mm works still in that way. And that's just, is wonderful and amazing to hear. So I wanted to go back a little bit to your story because you had mentioned being a first generation, uh, American from Jamaican descent and talking a little bit about how in a way you're, you're moving through two worlds and it's a little difficult to feel like you belong in one or the other. This is something that came up a couple of weeks ago as I was reviewing something online. I can't remember. If it was an article or a blog, but there was something where, where someone was also talking about having a similar experience and it got me thinking also about my experience. So in my, in my situation, I am the immigrant, right? I moved to the US when I was five years old. And so like you, I feel like I still felt that sense of not being Jamaican enough. Hmm. But then also not being American enough, and so can you talk a little bit more about that? And especially considering the fact that we now live in a a country where we do have a lot of individuals who are either who either immigrated here or who are the children of immigrants, and I don't think that there's a lot of work done around their search for identity or even how that affects their social and emotional well-being. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'll elevate it with a a few quick anecdotes. You know, I remember coming back. So because anytime I wasn't in school, I was in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going back home, I would, and home for me is Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So when I would go back home, sometimes people would say, th- you know, in the community, friends would say things like, oh, you're a Yankee. Mm. Ah. <laughs> I, hear you ya- I hear you Yankee twang. Mm-hmm. And I would feel a way about that, quite frankly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I wanted my accent to sound like my cousins. I wanted my accent to sound like my my siblings. And it didn't. It had what they would call the Yankee twang. Mm-hmm. And so It made me feel othered. And although in hindsight, I know that those children were not saying it to make me feel bad because quite frankly, some of them wanted to have a Yankee Twang, Mm -hmm. it made me feel othered. I felt outside of the in-group. The reverse would happen when I would come back to Boston. And unbeknownst to myself, I would have a thicker Jamaican accent. Mm -hmm. And because I spent the entire summer there. Yeah, And so I would come back and I would have that, you know, patois link, right, to Mm. my voice. And my friends would be like, why do you sound like that? (laughs) Your voice sounds different. Or I remember very very specifically in third grade, I was spelling the word color and I was spelling the word labor. And I spelled it the British way, with a Mm. U.
0: Yeah.
1: And was told that I misspelled the word. And I would never forget the like pain in my heart and my stomach that I felt in that moment because, quite frankly, I prided myself on knowing how to spell things uh-huh. Uh-huh. and being a, in quotes, uh, bright student. And for the teacher to tell me that I spelt these two words incorrectly when I knew I spelt them correctly based on my cultural context, I was confused. And so for some time, I had to wrestle with, and I would say this kind of wrestling of self-awareness and identity continued all the way through, I would say probably second year of college, but really wrestling with like, who am I? You know, I went through this moment of like, I'm just a I'm just Jamaican. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't acknowledge the parts of me that were clearly American. And so finally, I was able to come to a realization, a honoring of the multiplicity of my cultural identity and an honoring of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure how I got there. All I could say is that, as I mentioned earlier, I've always been a child. I've always been a person who... Thinks deeply about how the mind works and how that then impacts your behavior. And so I've always had a reflective practice before even knowing to call it that. And I just got to a place where I was okay with honoring and owning the multiplicity of my cultural experience and not feeling as though I needed to prove that I'm more this or that, just saying this is what I am, this is who I am, and I'm okay with it. And by me being okay with it, by me being at peace with it, it didn't matter how anyone else felt.
0: Yeah. I love that you discussed that and you talked about, you know, the experience that you had because I felt like it was very different than my experience. Hmm. So in my experience, I didn't, when I moved to the U S, we didn't travel that often back to Jamaica. And so I remember in my childhood, maybe going back once or twice. And I feel like for me, one of the things that I tried to do because for example, the people would say comments like, oh, she's Jamaican Mon. And it got on my nerves when they would use a Mon. Mm. and I hated that. Oh, yeah. So one of the big things that I tried to do was get rid of my accent. Mm-hmm. Not only because of that, but then I noticed that with my older sister and then also with my older cousins, They all had to go to speech class and get removed from their classroom and go to the special setting. And I didn't like the idea of being singled out in that way. And a lot of the reason they were sending them to speech was because of their absence. And so I, you know, intentionally got rid of mine without really considering, you know, how in a way I was, you know, I was pushing down a part of myself. And so as I got older, when I did go back to Jamaica, it was kind of like, Got the same thing which you were saying about how you know the Yankee and all that, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think that that's something that I definitely regret was not leaning in as much to my background and my culture as being Jamaican growing up. And so, in considering that, like, what advice would you give in terms of for parents or teachers and how they can support? Because like the first thing that comes to my mind is the idea of like the culturally sustaining. Pedagogy and you know helping children to see their worth, or the not necessarily just worth, but the strength that they have in whatever their cultural background is, and seeing um, and celebrating that with them. So I'm wondering, like for you, what what do you what advice would you provide in
1: that? Yeah, I think at the core of the problem is our obsession with binary thinking, mm-hmm. that you have to be either or, you can't be both, you can't, and it's a either or. And so part of my coming to appreciate the multiplicity of my cultural heritage was rejecting that binary paradigm was saying, I'm not either, or I'm both and, and I'm okay with that. And so the more we as parents, the more we as educators can broaden the aperture for our children and say, you don't have to be either, or you're this, you're this, you're this, and you're this, Mm -hmm. and you can embrace all of that. And as you grow in your own self-awareness you begin to connect with what parts of you are connected with the multiple identities that you carry.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So, now I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, your definition of social and emotional well-being. How do you define it? What do you see it as?
1: Mhm. So, social and emotional well-being relates to the ways in which we relate to ourselves and others and those things are informed by our cultural, communal, and familial context. And so that, to me, is what social emotional well-being is, is that you're having a healthy relationship with yourself. That is the foundation. And then from there springs your ability and skill building to have healthy relationship with others.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I love, again, how you started with this idea of starting with self and then moving beyond that. And so from that standpoint in the work that you've been doing, you know, throughout your career, has that been the focus? Has it has it been primarily on that self piece and supporting the children that you've been working with on um, how to build up their own self-awareness? Or has it been broader in terms of all those different areas of social emotional learning as we think about it traditionally?
1: Yeah, I would say that as I think back to the trajectory of my professional experience, whether it was working with adults who were incarcerated Mm -hmm. or children in public school settings or parents in private school settings, the starting place has always been with the self. And looking at the stories and the narratives that we carry from childhood that impact our perception, that impact our behavior, and really encouraging healing, Mm -hmm. um, re-evaluation of those narratives, and reflective practice. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So I've heard you say this a couple times about storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I met you, it was at an AERA conference and we were on a panel together. Mm-hmm. And something you said there has like stuck with me ever mm-hmm. since. It was a question that was asked about like, what do we see as the next steps for social emotional learning? Where does it need to go? And one of the things that I had suggested was this need for more, I guess, quantitative analyses mm-hmm. and, and more of that view. And you questioned it. Mm-hmm. and it has stuck with me because it really did lead me to really reconsider the way that I look at social-emotional learning and the lens that I was putting on it. And you asked, why do we value this idea of looking at the field to determine whether or not we're being effective by looking at it with numbers? And why don't we value like the qualitative aspects of it? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the storytelling and, and the people that we're trying to use these either interventions or that we're trying to support their social emotional learning and hearing from them in terms of their experiences and and their perceptions about growth. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the work that you've been doing around storytelling? Because I think it's amazing. It's amazing work. And I would love for more people to know about it.
1: Yeah. So I will really elevate my colleagues and the co-directors of the National SEED Project Gail Cruz Robeson, Emmy Howe, John Do Chen, and so many others at that project who really helped to strengthen my appreciation and awareness for the stories that we carry and the power of those stories. Mm -hmm. And, And quite frankly, they supported my skill building around uncovering what were the stories I was carrying and helping others to do the same. I remember one year at AERA, I can't remember the presentation I was in and I really wish I did, but there was a sister there and she was one of the discussants Mm -hmm. and she said, not everything that counts can be counted. And Mm -hmm. that just was like mic drop for me. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We live in a uh, Eurocentric framed Society and the reality is, is that that cultural context values data, quantitative data and undervalues qualitative data, the narrative and in going to a variety of Spaces at AERA, whether it be the hip hop sig, Black Studies, where they elevate the qualitative as just as important and informative as the quantitative, you know, and mm-hmm. continue to support my internal appreciation for storytelling. And also, I think it's important for us to understand the stories that we're carrying because it reconnects us to our humanity. Living in a society where we are flooded with a variety of systems of oppression in its many forms. Mm-hmm. Um, the essence of these systems is a dehumanization process. And even if we look at history, if we look at what was done to the Native Americans, if we look at what happened with Black people who were taken from the West Coast of the continent of Africa, mm-hmm. if we look at the conquistadors, all of these things, part of implementing these systems, these very destructive systems of oppression required a detaching of people's story. So if I trace my last name Drummond, <laughs> uh, which I tried to, it is a Scottish last name and it's attached to a slaveholder yeah. of my ancestors. And so even things like removing cultural names, removing cultural languages, all of those things are an attempt at detaching people from their stories. And when you are not embedded in your story, when you do not have a foundation of understanding your story, it leaves you in a space of not fully being able to know yourself, which is the foundation of SEL, the the, the self-awareness. Yes,
0: yes. Component. Oh
1: my goodness. That is,
0: yes, you are dropping some gems. No, that is, is very, no, really that that's definitely something that, you know, I haven't thought about it in that way, but you're so, so right. And I'm glad that I asked you that question because it solidified it even more, the need to look into these stories. Like what advice would you give though, for those who are thinking, okay, but how do I do that? Like what, what would you
1: say? Yeah. The advice I would give is so there are many different routes you could take, right? So one route that I took at a very young age was simply asking questions, asking questions of the elders in your family. If you have that privilege to have connection with people who are elders, biological elders, not, not, not everyone has that mm-hmm. opportunity. So if you have that opportunity, I would say ask questions of the oldest people in your family as much as you can and see what information you can get, what stories they have. The other thing I would say is start with self-observation. So notice your reactions, whether it be uh, physical, emotional, or thoughts that come up in certain situations with certain groups of people and watch out for patterns. Once you find a pattern, make a note of it. And begin a self-inquiry process. Mm. Why is it that anytime a Black man comes into the elevator with me, I notice my heart starts beating faster? Mm. That's curious. I recognize the pattern and now I begin a self-inquiry process. What I have found is that when you ask the question out loud of yourself, eventually the answer will come. And so we don't always know the answer initially, as to why we behave the way we do. Um, but if we are asking that question with a level of openness and earnestness, then the answer will come. Questions like, you know, I had to ask myself a question years ago around why is it that I get more upset viscerally when my daughter does something versus when my son does the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed that pattern in myself, I then started questioning myself. I then questioned my my daughter. I asked my daughter her opinion. I asked my son his opinion. And I sat with it. It took some time. And eventually I realized that I was carrying a gender story that I didn't realize I was carrying, hmm. which was little girls don't take up space. Little girls don't laugh loud. Uh, little girls make everyone feel okay. So if somebody tells a joke and it's not really that funny, they still laugh anyways. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't realize I was carrying that story around gender because it was pushed so deep down because the stories of race were at the forefront of my mind yeah. and not the stories of gender. Often, that, that can be a whole nother episode, says uh, <laughs> often <laughs> as Black women, we are asked to detach ourselves or choose a side.
0: Yes. No, yes, definitely. It's either you're focusing on your race or you're focusing on your gender. But yes, it's definitely more complicated, like you were talking about with the binary stance and having to choose one or the other. Wow. So when you were talking about this idea of self-awareness and starting to ask those questions, I feel like we may need to have another conversation for real to go back (laughs) to the gender part, because I do feel like that's um, another part of it. And gender fits into equity as well. So yes, we can fit all of this in. So in terms of doing that work, in terms of your self-awareness and starting to ask those questions, and I can foresee that also playing a part in terms of equity and how mm-hmm. we are going to be in a now a better space to more or less tackle some of those biases and those stories that we've told ourselves to really get at some of the issues related to equity in our society. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And I just love to hear more about, you know, the work you've been doing around equity and things that you've been learning, you know, through your work.
1: Yeah. A lot of the work around connecting SEL with an equity lens has to do with storytelling for me. That's just the framework that I come from. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what are the stories that we're carrying uh, really helps to uncovering the stories that we carry really helps to deepen our self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And again, self-awareness as the uh, strongest piece, a foundational piece that the rest of our social and emotional wellness is built on. Once we strengthen the self-awareness through self-observation, we strengthen and deepen not only our self-awareness, but our ability to interrupt our automaticity. Hmm. And that's where my contemplative practice has really been a godsend. Sitting and meditating, having meditative practice that sometimes is more kinesthetic that looks like just immersing myself in dance. Mm-hmm. Um, or running, having a contemplative practice has really helped to strengthen my ability to interrupt my automaticity. And at the core of this equity work and social justice work is the need. One, one of the core pieces is the need to interrupt ourselves mm-hmm. from judgment, from behavior and reactions that can harm And that come from stories that are squarely based in systems of oppression.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But we can't interrupt ourselves if we don't know that we carry those stories, right? So it goes back to even the story that I just shared about my children. Like the fact of the matter is is I I was operating in a biased way between my sons and my daughter. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that because the story that I created in the front of my mind, and quite frankly, the story that if you look on Google or any other, um, you know, website is that, you know, girls are just harder to deal with than boys. Yeah. So I had so I had things to corroborate this story that I made up. But it was only until I decided that I wanted to be more open and, and have changed the nature of my relationship with my daughter, that I realized that that's actually not the story. Like, we can always find evidence in quotes to support whatever story we want to hold. (laughs) But if we really want to do this kind of deep dismantling work within ourselves, and I think this is the same type of work that we need to do institutionally and socially, then it requires us to have a level of rigorous honesty and compassion with ourselves. To be able to say, actually, no, it's not just that girls are more difficult to deal with. I am being biased. I I see myself actually having a completely different response viscerally in my body Mm -hmm. to one person versus the other. And so I need to make a choice to interrupt that. And it doesn't mean that your body won't still automatically do that knee jerk response. Like we're all swimming in this. Yeah, there's not one person within our population who's not within our society who's not swimming in this. Like this is the water we're swimming in, and so much of the work is about unlearning versus learning.
0: Yeah, yeah. And something else that I'm hearing you say as you're talking about this, and even tuning into those visceral feelings, is the idea of using emotions to help in that work, yeah. and and using that to help you in um, noting. And learning about yourself and like noting things that you should be questioning. So Mm -hmm. noting areas where you want to reflect and then using that to help in making those changes. So it's kind of twofold there because I also hear you saying with the emotions piece that those emotions may still remain. Right. So Mm -hmm. you may still feel those pangs. So, yeah, I guess I'm just (laughs) I'm just going back and thinking about this and trying to unpack it even Mm -hmm. for myself and thinking through that because in one way it's like listen to the emotions to figure out what to work on but then at some point in doing the work honoring that that emotion is there but then not necessarily acting
1: on it right and you don't even have to honor the emotion because the emotion could be problematic let's be Mm -hmm. clear (laughs) it's coming from a problematic place it's simply observing the emotion without Mm -hmm. judgment at this point so now that you have Recognize that this is a a knee-jerk reaction to black men or a knee jerk reaction to girls versus boys or boys versus girls, whatever it may be. You sit with that, you want you you figure out what the narratives are that you're holding, and then part of the healing process, part of the dismantling process is that your body's gonna naturally have that automatic response, that automaticity. Mm -hmm. And so you observe and say, Hmm, there goes that feeling again, there goes that thought again, and I'm going to choose to do something different and over time your automatic response becomes different
0: mm, yes okay thanks for clarifying that no that is a good point to mention because yeah you're right you do not need to honor it always because sometimes yeah. it is problematic yeah. oh so I feel like I have so many questions <laughs> that I'm gonna <laughs> with, so I'm going to be thinking about this for a while so let's talk a little bit about self-care because this podcast does have a lot of things around self-care. So can you talk a little bit about your self-care journey and and Uh, what are some things that you've done?
1: Yes. Oh man, it's been a journey (laughs) because (laughs) simply because I have been socialized that women don't take care of themselves. They take care of everybody else.
0: Mm. And
1: Good women, especially good West Indian women do that, right? And I think it, this probably, you know, from my experience with talking to many friends from many different cultural backgrounds, I think this idea that women are not good women if they don't, if they're only focused on taking care of themselves, I think it spans across cultural contexts. So it's been hard. It's actually been Harder than I thought it would be. When I decided to be very intentional about that, I was actually surprised at how hard it was. Mm -hmm. So, a few things that I'd like to elevate. So, there's a difference between self care and self soothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Self soothing, I would engage in a lot of self soothing things, like, you know, well, not even a lot, but I would engage in self soothing. So, like, I'm taking a hot bubble bath Mm -hmm. or I'm eating some chocolate (laughs) or I'm deciding that I'm watching TV tonight because usually I don't watch TV. So these are like self-soothing things. And those are important. That has to be integrated as a part of the entire self-care journey. However, there were things that I needed for self-care that would have created a bigger impact. Like I needed to get help for someone to come to my house to like help me clean and organize some stuff. Yeah. And even the thought of doing that Created a cultural clash within me because again, the narrative that I carried around that is that good women don't do that. You clean your own house. You organize your own house. Like we're just born knowing how to do that stuff. <laughs> and I felt a lot of shame, a lot of guilt that that idea even came across my mind, quite frankly. Yeah. And only decided to do it twice. But I was only able to get over that feeling a bit because of another sister who I admire and who's a close friend of mine, part of my kind of sister tribe, who was like, girl, I do that. (laughs) And like, people don't got to know. You do what you got to do. This is self-care. Yeah. Another example is sitting down and just simply creating a chore chart for my kids. I know that sounds like duh, but like that's self-care because it sometimes is. I get into a space where it's just like, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done the way I want it. And I had to let that go. Like I can't do everything and be everything. And so, you know, I appreciate the family structure that I have in that everyone was on board with that. Mm-hmm. So I created a chore chart and I'm like, what are the things that needed to need to get done? And like, we split it up. Yeah. And it makes a difference. I mean, of course, you know, as any parent, you're going to have to keep reminding your kids about different things. But the point of the matter, it's there. And I, I now have it hung up on the fridge and you can just go over there and look. Those things matter. Getting more hands to do the work that I have to do. That's important. Other things around self-care that I've done with, the, I would say, within the last year in particularly is training myself to give myself the emotional things that sometimes I can't get from the closest people in my life. And sometimes like at the end of the day, I think this is such an important practice because we expect at times our loved ones to be able to give us more than they can emotionally sometimes. And so I needed to go through this practice, quite frankly, of giving myself love in the way that I wanted, giving myself affection, in the way that I need it sometimes. And I would literally sit and say, okay, what am I feeling right now? Oh, I wish I could have a hug in this moment. And I literally, Tia, would sit down and hug myself.
0: Oh, that, yeah, you, see, I'm stopping again. No, that is so in line. No, that is so in line with the way I think about it. And I love how you talked about this idea of self-care and self-soothing is different, right? So I talk about self-care as it being like you're parenting yourself. Yes. When you have a little kid, if you see that your little kid is sad, what do you do? You give them a hug. And so you do that for yourself. That's important. Or yes. they're overwhelmed. You take things off their plate to help them. So it's yes. doing those same things for yourself as the adult. Yes. Yeah. I love how you, you know, talked about some of the examples of things that you're doing. And and I also like that you mentioned that it's hard because I think people look at it like, oh, this is frivolous. I'm just gonna, you know, yes. go to the spa once once a month and I got my self-care but no
1: Mm-mm. that's soothing for the moment yeah exactly. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a part of the whole package and there's other things you know that we need
0: yeah and I think even the work that you're talking about in terms of that that contemplative work that is self-care yeah. you're really yes. taking the time yes. to learn yourself and to build yourself into the type of person you want to be that's yes. important yes. Wow. So I have, I guess, just one more question for you in terms of our listeners. I'm sure they're going to want to engage with you, learn more about the things that you're doing. How can they do that? How can they get in touch with you and just see kind of what you're up to, what, where you'll be doing your next talk and things like that?
1: Sure. I've just recently gotten on Twitter. So I have a Twitter handle there. I think it's at Camila Drummond, with an N at the end, not the D. So the D is cut off at the end and the number one. Also on LinkedIn, I often will post any recently published articles that I may have or any events that I may be doing. You know, I usually post there and you can just find me on LinkedIn and Facebook with my name. So Camila Drummond Forrester.
0: Thank you so much, Camila. This has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and just taking the time to talk with us and to just bless us with your knowledge.
1: Thank you so much, Tia. I
0: really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please visit drtiabarnes.com for show notes. And while you're there, feel free to leave a note. I'd love to connect. If you like the show, subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. Don't forget to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to colettemckenzie.com for providing podcast management services for this show. See you all next week, and as always, take care.